As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Welcome to this week's Why Always Us. This is your Manchester City podcast from The Athletic. I'm Sam Lee, and because David's away this week, I'll pretty much be taking over the hosting duties. But I am very happy to say that with me is Nadam Manua. Nadam, how's it going, mate? Yeah, good, good part yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, bit of a mad game at the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a good game to skirt over, really. And fortunately... Um, there's plenty of stuff to talk about. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can read all of our articles on City as well as everything else. And don't forget, that goes back the best part of three years now. So you just go to theathletic.com forward slash Man City pod. And right now you can sign up for a special price of just £1 a month for six months. And this is one of those deals I've said in the past. I have to say that that's pretty good. So if you're not on it already, get on it at theathletic.com forward slash Man City pod. Right. So the big story everybody was kind of either going to bed with on Monday night or waking up to on Tuesday morning was Erling Haaland. Look, me and David Ornstein have kind of, well, we've obviously been working on this for the past couple of weeks. Uh, It's funny because when the stories kind of came out around six weeks ago, that it was all agreed by people that I really respect. You know, I know, and I, I respect them a lot. People were messaging me a few days afterwards going, oh, you've been, you've been really quiet. You must know something. And honestly, I, I didn't. I didn't really. Um, it caught me on the hop. I was off for a few days. Took me a while to get to grips with it. I was thinking, right, the week I'm back, we'll hammer it now. We'll send out a few feelers and we'll, we'll get a story out and this will be that. But it took a couple of weeks. And then as the weeks went on, we were like, okay, it's not quite there yet. All I can say without giving the game away too much because we've not written anything yet is it's, it is in a good position. Since those stories first came out, there have been more talks. They were good talks as far as City is concerned. And the position me and Orny have been in, I think it's fair to say, is we want to be able to do the story when it's when it's on. You know, we don't want to do the story and say Man City have had talks or Man City are ready to do this or whatever because you might have to wait another two or three weeks for an update. So the situation we're in now, maybe the story that's come out in the Daily Mail by Mike Keegan is the smoking gun. And, you know, we're, we're reacting to that now. And if we do a story in the next 48 hours, then there you go. It's happening as far as we know. But we want to be 100% sure. And right now, we're not quite there. And we'll leave the little bits and details that we have heard for later on. But what we can talk about, Nadam, is 
not only is it really exciting, it's really exciting, but it's also, I think he'll be great, but I'm not convinced that it's going to be as easy as great player in great team equals great success. Um, what do you reckon? What, what do you what do you mean by that? Like, what, how are you going to measure his success, do you think? Well, I think there's kind of intangible stuff. So this season, maybe Guardiola would say Jack Grealish has been a success and he's settled in very well. And we could look at context um, of other players and say it's been a, a solid first season. But I don't think anybody's saying he's definitely repaid the fee. And so in terms of what I feel, I mean, after one year of Haaland, two years of Haaland, will people be saying because he won't cost the same as Grealish, but everyone knows the wages, everyone knows the commission. So it's the same. You know, he's effectively more expensive in that sense, in how he'll be judged. Will people be saying, this guy's been amazing? I reckon so. But because of that, you know, the financials of it, because of the pressure, because of the expectation, because he's that good, and because of the expectation that he's going into a team that's already that good, and he'll be working with Pep Guardiola. I'm trying to work out if people would be like, this guy's brilliant in a year's time, or okay, this is actually trickier than we thought. Because it's always mm. easy when there's new signings. If you think back to Romelu Lukaku going to Chelsea, and I'm not saying it's that comparable, but in terms of the coverage around it, when there's a big signing like that, it's easy to see it as the final piece in the jigsaw. It's easy to see it as positive. It's easy to see it as everything's going to work out. And you kind of overlook, not so much red flags, but you know, interesting little talking points. And I've been speaking to people about it in terms of information, but also how it'll work. Mm. Um, and I do think there's a few, let, let's say, mini red flags. So that, that's what I mean. Really. Yeah, I think, to be fair, the mini red flag, red flag thing is something which within football is probably more accepted than people from the outside because the perception is this guy scored 20, 30 goals in this league is going to come over and score 20, 30 goals in this league and now this team's going to do this and everything's going to be great. Like a few of us got almost got seduced by that concept with Lukaku at the start of this season. When we saw the hole that Chelsea kind of had, it's like they were missing this piece, but then the piece didn't fit straight well it it kind of fits straight away but then they realized it was a slightly different jigsaw so there's nothing to say that is it that there's a guarantee as such and with Haaland I think you know like the, the two different criticisms there's a criticism of a uh, somebody that supports City who sees their team in a certain way and the criticism from the outside who sees City in a certain way and don't have that emotional connection so for me like if he's going to be successful if he's not Everybody says City need a striker. So if we're going to break it down, what do they need a striker for? They said they need a better finisher. And I'm sure you go into the data and the stats around that. So if they get a better finisher, then surely in its simplest form, and I'm being very basic here for a reason, if he's their top scorer after he signs, then he's been a success. Would you agree with that? that well, this is the kind of interest in ins and outs because let's say Sergio Aguero, for comparison's sake, because I was thinking about this earlier on, Aguero had seasons where he scored more than 20 goals, but City didn't win the league. Mm. And Aguero scored, I don't know how many he scored in Pep's first season, but he was scoring a lot of goals. But mm -hmm. in Pep's eyes, you know, it still wasn't where he needed to be. So this is what I'm kind of thinking. There's that intangible sense of yeah. is it a success. And I think why I think he'll be a success is he'll need time to adapt, but he'll probably score enough goals while he's adapting that nobody's mm -hmm. going to be on his case. Whereas if Grealish had scored another five goals, people would probably lay off him a bit more. You know, that, that's a, I think you've made a good point there. It's reminded me of something. And it's this, it's the sort of like perception of what City need and what City are and who they want to be. Because like for me in the last 18 months, two years, I've accepted that them playing without strikers brought some of the best football I've ever seen before. Like, bang, that's what it is. Like Sergio Aguero, best striker, one of the best strikers I've seen in Premier League history. Like, in fact, he's played for City incredible. One of the, arguably the best City, one of the best ever City players. But 
he's not in the side and they're doing fine. He's sitting on the bench and it's like, oh, we need Sergio. And it's like, oh, they're fine. They're fine. You know what I mean? So it's a, that, that marries up. But then from the side of bringing in Haaland, the football could get worse, but the goals are being scored. So for people, were they more concerned about the football? Were they more concerned about the goals being scored? Because that's going to be a real trade-off in their mind because it could, it could, it could look very different if there's somebody in the, in the lineup that doesn't understand the system. But if he's still scoring, does that mean that everything's okay? Because surely then the danger, in my opinion, is like the other side of Manchester, they have a guy who scores goals, scores hat-tricks, scores whatever, but they're still being criticised for not having identity and for not being successful. And I don't think City, for a second, will drop down to that sort of level. But like I said, I think this is it's an interesting point for people now because they, it's like you have to make the judgment. If he, fall, like if he falls into the side, falls into the system, and he adds goals, then he's perfect. But how hard is that going to be when the game that you played previously, as when it was at Dortmund and I think was it was it Salzburg, like it was different. The city system is different. And I think sometimes we don't really give people enough time to be able to come in and figure out how different things actually are because, you know, it's 11 v 11, but it's not really when you're in that side and the movements you make are very different to say more classic systems you've seen elsewhere. Yeah. And I suppose the question is, it's funny you mentioned that you didn't mention him, but it's obviously Ronaldo. I was thinking the same thing because I don't mm. know what to think about that. I don't know if he is the problem or if he is the solution or if it, like what it is in between. I think Carl Anker wrote something recently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's, it's goals and the, the that's the thing about City. Like, this is why I always have these debates with people when they said, do City need a striker, so on and so forth. They always want to talk about it at a point where City are missing chances or something like that. But there's so much more to go with how they create the chances, how they play in the game, which is what makes it harder for the opposition as opposed to the goals themselves. So when they say, like with Ronaldo, like he's objectively scoring goals. That's, that's, what, he, that's what he does. That's who he is. But then they're still severely lacking in other, in other aspects. But you would have thought, well, you've got one of the greatest goal scorers of all time. So everything, all your problems are fixed. And with Haaland, he's right now, he's one of the best like number nines or strikers in the world. So yeah, that you can add to that, but try and picture what does that look like in the City team? And I think that's, that's something that people really have to focus in on because it might not look exactly how you want it to, but it could still be just as effective. Yeah. And basically like, I don't know, 18, 19, when Aguero was still basically the main, the main striker. Mm. City have played with a striker before. You know, Guardiola's been desperate for one, I don't know, for like three years really. Mm. And going back to when they tried to sign Kane in 2020, but then changed their mind and went for Messi, didn't get Messi. And then obviously last mm. summer they tried to get Kane. And the interesting thing about it as well, in terms of the style, and again, this is something I don't want to say explicitly yet because we'll wait until we can write the, the thing. But I've said before that Guardiola preferred Kane last summer. Guardiola wanted Kane, saw him as a better fit. And now I think we agree, well, I, 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 I agree anyway, that, that if you put Kane stylistically into this team, forget age, forget injuries forget whatever stylistically somebody who can drop off the front line and be a false nine which is obviously something that City want but somebody who's still scoring the goals mm. Kane obviously fits better his link plays better his understanding of that is better maybe people are listening to this proper hyped up that City are supposed to be getting Haaland pretty soon and look th- I think that is my overall feeling but I don't know how much of a podcast it makes because my, my overall thought is he's amazing and we'll go into exactly how in a minute to get the hype train rolling a bit. He's amazing. Guardiola's amazing. The other players are amazing and they're adaptable. So it's probably going to be fine. And that adaptation, I can imagine how the first season looks. He'll probably score loads of goals and Guardiola will be asked how brilliant he is in the press conferences and Guardiola will say something like, because he's done this with Sane, he's done this with Aguero, loads of players. He can still improve a lot. 
you know, there's still a margin for him to improve. There's certain things we want him to work on. And we'll be sat there in the in the media, Haaland's just scored twice at Anfield or whatever, and Pep saying he can still do this. And we're all like, what could that possibly be? Which was like when, when City won their first six games of the Guardiola, we were like, okay, well, they're going to piss it out. And he was like, we can be so much better. And now five years later, we're like, oh yeah, okay. It's night and day. Yeah. But when when he was saying the same things about Aguero, Aguero scored twice at Stoke. And we were like, oh, well, he's great, isn't he? And he was like, well, he can still do this. I think it's going to be that. So I think the adaptation period is going to be fine because he will score enough goals basically to keep the media off his back. And if the media are on his back, then there's no conversation to be had. And it's just the conversations between Pep and him. Tell you what's going to happen though, I can preempt this now. And you know, when this happens, it's like the bingo thing, just take it off or whatever. At some point, if he does sign and he's playing for City and then he doesn't score in a couple of games, you'll see all the breakdowns of match of the day on Sky Sports, Monday Night Football. Say, so you see, Cancelo's got the ball there. He needs to play a 40 yard diagonal to him here so he can chest it down to the guy that's in the 10 and all this. And we're trying to describe how City should be playing with him instead of just like seeing this is how they're going to do it. And there's a sense of inevitability that whoever plays, even in that nine, even in City's team, they're not going to score every game. But the scrutiny on someone like him, the moment he comes in, if he's not doing that, then yeah, it's a funny position. Also, you mentioned Kane, and I think obviously he's a fantastic player, finishing all that stuff. My only concern with him a little bit is that, say in years gone by, he's had a tendency to just want to come back, just get a touch of the ball. But then tactically, like his teams have changed a little bit. But I find it interesting that Southgate, Mourinho and Conte are all allowing him to become more of a false nine slash attacking midfielder. I find that very strange. And I wonder if like, of all three have the same tactical vision or are they just playing around his tendencies? Because with City, difference between say, uh, definitely England and definitely Spurs is they don't have someone like Kevin De Bruyne in and around the 10 position. So for him coming back, almost feels like a necessary evil to be able to find the quality balls to go and play in the people who are higher up. Yeah, and the runners. Exactly, yeah. Whereas if he was at City, him coming back there, he's almost clogging up the space and affecting the people who are already in that slot, if you know what I mean. To do it like he does it, yeah, to get it and play the balls in behind rather than the Foden thing of get it, pass it off, running behind. Yeah, yeah. like you know what I mean? Like that, that. That's the only thing which I'd be curious about because at, at some stage I'm wondering whether, as I say, if it's his manager's tactical stuff or if it's just his tendency. And if it's his tendency, then it's one which I think the way City play, in my opinion, he can't really do it to, the, to his maximum ability, the tendency at least. Mm. And, and I want to see like when he's playing... I think we spoke about this. There was a point when he played against Newcastle and they showed his like pass map or whatever. And it would play. every ball was like 15, 20, 30 yards forward, diagonals, this, that, and the other. And if you didn't know that was him that played those passes and you saw the pass map, you'd think it was just an attacking midfielders. But I want him to be on the end of some of those, you know, because then it shows that he's actually on the last defender and he's being fed as opposed to feeding all the time because he's, he's probably the best. Like, to be fair, I didn't say this to you, but right now, you know, he's had a he had a slow start to the season, then he picked up and he's obviously gonna finish the year in over 20 goals and whatever. But he's only scored he scored 12 goals in the league, which at the time of saying it was the same as Ronaldo, but then also the same as uh most striker for Brentford. Tony? Yeah, Tony and I as Ivan Tony he was the same as them. And more importantly for me, he was second top scorer at Spurs and he was five behind Son. And I thought that doesn't feel right because for all the stuff he where he's great passer and all that, I still believe he should be top scorer for Spurs. And that just didn't quite sit right with me. So a few, a few things on Kane and also what you said earlier, and this is definitely a thing. So whenever City have had chances this season, particularly earlier in the season, it was like, okay, well, if they had a number nine, they'd have won that game because it had done this. And it's almost like it's become that situation that 
any striker in the world is going to score every chance they get, which yeah. obviously isn't the case. So that skewed the debate somewhat. And then Kane didn't really help this because you mentioned that Newcastle game. I imagine the amount of City fans listening to this podcast who saw Spurs play Newcastle is much lower, let's say, yeah. than the amount of City fans who watched Kane at the Etihad against City when he was amazing. And I think the abiding kind of memory of that performance was Kane was amazing as a false nine and as a striker in the box. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was a great performance. I remember we talked about this earlier in the season. It may have been when we did the, the podcast after the Chelsea, City beat Chelsea in September and then he went to Paris. And this was a debate that uh, Mark Chapman had with Statman Dave on Five Five of the week. And, and Dave mentioned how Mares is a City player with the like the biggest big chance conversion or the best big chance conversion. I actually was a little nerd and messaged Mark Chapman and said, that includes penalties, you know. And then he read that out on air about two minutes later. And I was like, mm-hmm. God, now everyone knows what a little nerd I am. But I've looked at I've looked at the stats. So the cutoff point for this is when Haaland joined Dortmund. Dortmund. So kind of January 2020. This is, this is the cutoff point. So we've had over two years of big chances in the Premier League. So I've got Sterling, Jesus, Mares, and Foden and Kane. And it doesn't include penalties because I think look, that would be useful. If City sign a striker who can score penalties, that's great. Because if City got a big game in the next few weeks and they get a penalty and Mares isn't on the pitch, I'm a bit worried. But obviously, mm. you need someone who's going to score penalties, but I'm taking it out just to see how clinical yeah. they are. So in the last two years... Sterling is 38, Jesus is 38, Mahrez is 42% in terms of converting their big chances. Kane is 44%. Now, I remember when we looked at the start of the season, and this is probably was, because he had a poor 50, few it? months, he was around 50 and there was a significant margin there, I thought. There was like, if you just add that 15, 20% margin or whatever it was, you're going to get a load more goals at City. Um, mm-hmm. Funnily enough, Foden's had much fewer. So Kane's had 65 big chances, not including penalties. No, 59, sorry, not including penalties. Foden's had 22, but Foden has got 45% big chance conversion. So he's doing all right in that little false nine area. You know, when, he's, when, he, when he does have those chances, maybe because they seem to be from about three yards out. But Foden's <laughs> doing all right. So that's a little food for thought there on, in terms of that. I also messaged Opta, or stats performers, they're known now. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to read out their reply. So I said, can, can you give us um, Erling Haaland's big chance conversion since he started for Dortmund? Because that's what they sent me earlier in the season. I just wanted updated ones. They said he's converted 42 out of his 70 big chances, excluding penalties, and that's 60%. It's the best figure of any player across Europe's main five leagues since his league debut for Dortmund. And that's minimum 30 big chances. Because obviously, if you get one big chance and you score it, you're yeah. 100%. So, so yeah. that's the context there. So that's better than anyone. And there's another table. Here's how he compares to the players with the most big chances over the same time frame. So Lewandowski has got 117. Ronaldo's eight, got 80. And Mbappe's got 72, whereas Haaland's got 70. But Haaland has still got, by a distance, the biggest. Because on this table, the highest number is Lewandowski's 46%. And fine, he's had loads more. more than He's nearly 50 more, but 46%. And Haaland's on 60. The guy is a goal-scoring animal. For anyone who can, who's into numbers, into data, like that's probably like a wet dream. That that's the perfect stuff you, which you've been saying. But there are two things here. Like the the definition of a big chance, I'd probably need you to address that. But then also, when you look at somebody like Lewandowski who's scoring 50, 60 goals per calendar year minimum, you've said his conver- big chance conversion rate sits around fifty percent. Okay, so by itself, it's like oh, that's incredible, and that's who you want. 
But now picture that in terms of a game. You're seeing him score one out of every two big chances that he gets. So sometimes when we look at somebody missing a chance, it's like, oh, player X would have definitely scored that. But it's literally 50-50, like the same positions, essentially, the same moments. It's 50-50. We're not talking like the shot conversion rate. We're talking big chances. Like after the big, like what's the, there's no, I can't, there's not bigger, bigger chances. You know what I mean? Like the next tier chances where, you know, everything goes your way, the wind's blowing behind your back, all that stuff. So I think like, this is, this is the debate we have. We can look at it from, as I say, from a data standpoint, but then we can actually just try and take in football for what it is. And even the best, they don't score all their chances yet. Still, whenever we're watching a game, like we hear it and then it rolls over into the way we talk about it. When a cross comes in or something and someone says, oh, he has to score that. He should have scored that. He's done this. He's done that. Like nobody's a hundred percent, like even like a penalty, the, the, what the XG was at 0.85 or something. So there is, a, there's a good, there's a chance that somebody's going to miss it. Yet still everything's so definitive. Player X would have scored that. City would have scored that if they had this striker in. They could have had Robert Lewandowski in. And if those stats are true, then he still would have scored or half the goals that they anticipate that he would have scored. So would you be saying he's no good once you look at the data? Chances are you probably wouldn't, would you? No, you wouldn't. Although another interesting kind of flip side to that, because I, I completely agree with that. And I, I, you, you might agree with this, but if you're used to, and look, so the fact that Mares and, and Foden are pretty similar to Kane in terms of those chances is interesting in terms of the big yeah. chance of conversion. But I mean, if you think about, well, these are the obvious ones, right? And I don't, I don't care if it sounds harsh. Look, if this was Mooney on, I, w- I wouldn't make these caveats. But because it's you and you're a former player, yeah. you know how difficult cool. it is. But Jesus' chance against Liverpool at the weekend, you've got to be scoring yeah. that. And mm. this was one of the questions, actually. Somebody said they, they'd they love to know what I think about Jesus. And I think he's a great player. And if City could, they should keep him forever. But you can't be playing him as number nine in those clutch moments. Mm. And so there's that one. And there's Sterling's chance against Liverpool in the Premier League game after five minutes. Yeah, those two for me are the the biggest culprits for missing big chances. So you talk about the perception of Robert Lewandowski or whoever it may be is only scoring one in every two, and whereas we maybe think they should be scoring every time. The flip side of that coin is, I think I certainly and a lot of people listening to this, dare I say, would be expecting Jesus or Sterling to miss going through on goal one on one, or they've got that thirty eight percent conversion rate. All of a sudden, mm. you bang it up to 55%, 60%. Mm. That's a big margin. Mm. All of a sudden, that frustration, that feeling of that was a big chance. It was a big, like, okay, the Liverpool one in the league didn't matter because De Bruyne scored straight after. But the Jesus one, that was a big, big moment in the game with 20 minutes left. Mm-hmm. Somebody on the pitch who's 15% more likely to score, who is scoring more of those more regularly, that's going to also change the perception. So I think it's interesting because it's like, are these guys, whoever they may be, whether it's Haaland or whatever, if they come in, are they not scoring as many as we expect in our mind's eye or looking at it from the stats point of view? Or are they scoring more than the guys that you've already got? I think that's an interesting side to it. Yeah, and I think think to add to that, because I think that's a a fair point, is that again, we then start thinking, if City, you speak, well, not us, not everyone. People say, if City had a number nine, we talk like the only chances that are given are given to number nine. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, it's like, you know what I mean? It's it's a weird thing to get your head around because say the position that Sterling gets into or Jesus gets to if they're playing out wide and the chances they have, like their conversion rates comparably for the people who play in the same sort of positions that they have might be average, might be below average, might be above average. But instead we're perceiving them according to a player who should be 
a 50%. Like if you look at as you some of the data you've said there, or the people who play as number nines, like as literally central strikers where finishing is probably the most important thing. Yes, we'll probably think that they're going to score or whatever, but why do we have that same expectations for people who play in different positions, who are doing other things within the game? And, you know, who like trying to assist and things like this. Like I, that's why I can't get my head around, to be honest. Okay, so obviously we've got like the that overwhelmingly positive thing, like those numbers, that finishing of chances mm-hmm. is phenomenal. And that's obviously something to get excited about. And like I say, I think even if he's got to adapt, I think he'll score enough goals and it'll be fine. But the, the things that I'm interested in, we've already talked about Kane being better suited and about that period of adaptation. There are a few things that it doesn't strike me if it goes ahead and if it goes ahead with the kind of things that have been reported and the kind of things that we've heard as well. So the massive wages in the dressing room is a really interesting thing. So I'll talk about a bit what I heard last week and you can give us the kind of player's perspective. So it's easy to kind of think, okay, talking about breaking the wage structure, is it something that players really think about? Is it something that the agents think about more? One perception that I hadn't um, thought about until it was given to me last week. So this is at least one player at Chelsea. When the talk of Lukaku coming in for 97 million on big money, Apparently the feeling, at least with this one player, maybe his teammates as well, was, well, he's getting loads of money. He's getting more than me. But if he helps us deliver the Premier League, which is the one we want now, having won the Champions League, then we can live with that. That's fine. Obviously, it's not worked out so well. And because it's kind of been controversial with the Sky Italy interview and all of that kind of stuff, and it making it look like he wanted to go straight away or his loyalty wasn't there. Now, obviously, the same player and maybe others are thinking, well, he's getting paid more than me. He's not delivering. I want this money as well. So that is an interesting little thing that would go back to is he a success or not? And I wonder if if City don't win the Champions League this year, maybe if City don't win anything this year, God forbid, shall we say, maybe the players would be like, that is a lot. But if this guy is going to come, because I'm sure they'll be hyping the dressing room, if this guy is going to come and help us do that, then we can live with it. So that's an interesting little perspective. But I mean, have you got anything to add on that? Yeah, I have. have, Yeah, Yeah, 100%. There's slight spins on for you here. So... You, you, get a, you get a sense when somebody's coming in and you hear about the money, you never really know what the money is unless you know somebody that knows the truth. So you hear the speculation, you read the stuff online. And if he comes in and he pulls his weight, then the money doesn't affect you as much. And the good thing about that is if he performs as well, then he's basically reset the market. They've broken the wage structure for this person. So for all those other players within the team, when the time comes for you to be able to renew, you could maybe add a bit extra on top of what maybe you would have been hoping for because they can't make the argument that they can't afford it because somebody else has already gone up there. And it's not a case of saying, I want to be on the same as him, but you could in theory be getting more. Whereas if things don't go well and say say somebody, I'm not talking about at Lukaku or for Haaland or whatever, but if somebody comes in on big money and they stink, you know, they've got the wrong attitude, they don't buy into the culture, all that type of jazz, then it's probably worse for those players because then the club will never reset the market again. And they'll be looking to offload that player and keep things back to where they were. So from an incentive standpoint, people might be frustrated that they're not being paid that. But now here's a slight sort of like opening of the door to say, maybe you could start heading in that sort of direction. And if he's worth what he's worth and he makes the team better, then you'll enjoy your football more because you'll be winning even more. And if he's a good guy, then he buys into the culture. Then he's just, as I say, just reset things just that little bit. There's stuff like this happened in the in the past when City were first taken over and some, some of the people that were coming in and so on, they, they were on far different money to say what other people had been there for long, more years had been. But then lo and behold, a player who, if that person didn't come in, would have gone from maybe 20 to 30 
now they might go from 20 to 40 or 20 to 50 because this is the club and this is the way it is. And you're not on a hundred like this other person, but this is now the going rate to be a member of this team and this football club. People would hope if, if someone's jealous to the point where they feel like they need to get like £501,000 a week or whatever, they probably shouldn't be at your club because I imagine for people coming to City these days, like money does matter, but you come for everything else as well. Whereas in times gone by, you know, the money would have been the biggest thing. So I don't think you've got anyone with that sort of mentality whereby they're going to be crying because someone's earning more, more money than them. That, I mean, that, that is a fascinating one, isn't it? And just for the kind of, because I hadn't thought about that, that Chelsea example, but it does obviously make sense once you mm. do. One of the other things along those lines is the commissions. Now, I don't know exactly where we stand in terms of what we're going to say the wages would be or the commissions would be. I was given a figure, an overall figure of how much City have kind of budgeted for it. You know, down to the last penny, wages, commissions, the transfer fee that's going to Dortmund, like all the other stuff that goes into the contract, image rights and stuff. And it was less than 200 million. But if that's true, and maybe that was what they budgeted for initially, and maybe they had to go up recently and it's gone up considerably. I don't know. This is why we're kind of just waiting to iron things out. But it was less than 200 million. And if you think about it, that's not bad. If you think the the transfer fee is going to be like 75 million euros and then... You say it's not bad, but most people don't have the understanding of what... Not bad considering. Of, uh, yeah, yeah if, you don't, if you don't have the context of how much people are being paid and what that amounts to, say, annually and stuff like that, because you hear about the weekly thing or whatever, but you're not really thinking about it through the sort of context of, say, how much someone's agent fee is, the image rights, the salary, you know, like that 200 million is, is still 200 million. But the way that they're thinking about it in the sort of spread of a contract, that's the way that they, they look at these deals. And I know people from, most people anyway, from the outside, don't look at it that way, but that's how business is done. That's how people roughly calculate how much their their contract's worth and things like that. So I just needed to make sure that was that was heard. No, that's fine. But because it, it's kind of like, so it's relative in the sense that they would have spent, what, 120 million on Kane last year? And then what would the wages have been? Mm. Over, over a four or five year contract, it would have been about the same anyway. So- but it's mainly relative to what's being said. And if this number's right, and maybe maybe it's it's been bumped up, but I believe that that was definitely the number they were thinking at some point, then given that 75 million euro transfer fee and these mad wages and the mad commissions, it doesn't all add up. It seems, it seems like wages can't be that mad or the commissions can't be that mad. So I've only mentioned that. That was supposed to be a little brief side point and we'll hopefully be able to by the time we've got yeah. stuff in black and white come back to that but the commissions yeah. as well it's like paying huge wages and paying huge commissions just it just doesn't feel like a city kind of thing and i suppose this isn't really fair to put under a red flag because you can change the way you do business and it work out very well and it could be you could applaud them actually because i'm sure there's city fans who've been saying we should spend more money you know we've got loads why, why are we just buying players for 50-60 when we could really push the boat out we could have got Mbappe we could have got whoever it may be in the last couple of years Van Dijk let's say but now throwing in all these commissions to Rayola seems a very un-city like thing to do so that that just strikes me as strange more than anything but then the, the kind of kicker to that I guess is the talk about and this is something I think is legit the talk about them being willing to open the doors and let him go to Real Madrid later down the line. Now, we've talked about this already on the live podcast we did. And I would like to think that would have to be after, at least after three years, because you don't want in the third season, because you think about how quickly seasons come and go. You don't want the third season to be half full of stories in the Spanish press about Operation Harland. You don't want that. And I'd like to think City have got some kind of long game in mind where they're like, okay, 
we'll say he can come for three years, but we'll keep him for 10. Maybe like a bit like they're doing with Guardiola. I'm sure Guardiola never thought he'd be here this long. And if he yeah. signs another three-year deal and he's here for 10 years, then they've got it really. You're not, not trapped because he loves it. <laughs> and they're, they're yeah. probably hoping that Haaland's going to love it as well. But the, the whole the whole wages thing, there's potential there to be for it to go wrong. Potential. The commissions mm. are unusual, but it, the flip side of that is it goes to show how much they rate him. And I think some people at the club are about to be persuaded to go with it because yeah. of some people at the club haven't liked the figures, but ultimately the people who have made the decisions are like, look, we think this is the best thing for the club. So they have gone with it. But then, yeah, it's it's the Real Madrid thing. Like if, if he's got a clause to go to Real Madrid, you don't want that kicking in for four years at least. Yeah, and the Real Madrid thing as well. Like if this is true, and who knows if it's true. I, I worry that people question his loyalty or whatever. If he gets to like year one, year two, he's not doing very well. Well, it's not, it can oh, be know. a narrative then. If like you were saying earlier on, sorry to jump in, but you were saying earlier on, if it's not going well, and people, you know, on the matter of the match of the day, they're saying this is how City should be playing, and everything gets overanalyzed. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, and there's this cause about Real Madrid. Does yeah. you really, it, like this, this isn't us being negative now. This is us kind of knowing how things work. Yeah, and just preempting how things could happen. I think, in fairness to the to the kid or whatever, and I'm calling him kid because you know I'm a bit older now. And so, in fairness to the kid. Like this year for Dortmund, everybody knows it's his last year and he's played well for Dortmund. You know what I mean? And they've not really heard anything about people saying his attitude stinks or anything like that. So the hope is that he maintains, carries on being that person. And if it's a case of he's got ambitions to play for Real Madrid further down the line, firstly, Real Madrid could be an absolute car crash down the line. Who knows? But then also, at least he's not saying, I want to go and play for Man United further down the line or I want to go play for this team in the Premier League further down the line. Because then that's when like the real, real deeper narratives can sort of kick in. But yeah, I understand, and and I think as well you, you, the word and you keep saying like it's the right it's the right thing for City for City for City. Like days gone by, it'd be the right thing for the manager, but the manager's not making the sign. And whether the manager's there in Pep, whether he's there or not, you can still see Haaland being a significant part of what Man City are and what they're trying to be. So I guess in this moment, if this is what it takes to set up the future, whether it's short, medium, or long term, like. What, what are you going to do? You're going to say, it's like, no, nah, we'll just we'll just pass. We'll just pass on one of the most significant players in the, of his generation in football right now. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest, I mean, there's there's another couple of things we could run through, but ultimately, if this goes through, we're probably going to be doing this again, whether it's me, me yeah. and you, or me and whoever else. Yeah. Like the injuries is one thing, but look, like you just said, one of the best players of his generation, like the figures we gave, unbelievable. He's unbelievable. Pep's unbelievable. The play- like, I don't want people to think we're pissing on the parade already. And, you know, no, the contract got- hasn't even been signed yet. But more, more so me, they would probably yeah, think I, that I, 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 I would. I love, yeah, I love, I love this city team, and I'd love them to be able to add in someone like Erling Haaland, and I feel very happy that they're even part of like discussions for players like that at this point, and I'd love it even more if he decided to come in because he's going to have every option available, and it's not just going to be a case of we'll see through more money in because at the end of the day, the price is the price, and this is what's going to cost to bring him wherever he wants to go, and there's tons of people who would love to do it, but if he chooses to come city, then fantastic, and I think it'll be great in the Premier League as well. Yeah, and uh, one thing as well to add to that in terms of. Great player coming to the Premier League, possibly actually the biggest signing in Premier League history, given he's a young player with huge hype on the way up and quality. But that's maybe yeah. a conversation for another day. But yeah. also, how many times do we see players who are the next big thing? And I'm thinking a couple a couple of years back, Frankie De Jong, Matthias Delic, these kind of these going to be the next guys. They go and get moves where it doesn't work out. De Jong went to Barca, which has been a bit of a mess. Mm. Look, I'm not saying neutrals across the world are going to be flocking to watch City matches and they're going to be saying, oh, thank God he's gone to City. Because, But 
he's got everything he can now to realize his potential and to become one of the best of all time, possibly in a system where if it works, it will work spectacularly. Whereas let's say how many players have gone to, I hate to use them as a punching bag, but Man United in recent years, and we think they're great players going and it doesn't work out. Yeah. They're not in the right system. They're not in the right environment at city. They've got the right system with a few adaptations. They've definitely got the right environment. Yeah. It's, it is a very exciting transfer. And if we want to see, the best young players around the world thriving, then we kind of want to see them go to the best clubs. And I know yeah. that there's that's not a perfect argument because maybe it should be more equal. They should the quality should be spread around a bit more like the old days. But that's how we're going to get the best out of them. And yeah. it is very exciting. Yeah, for sure. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Right, so that was a pretty healthy Harlan chat, I reckon. We have we have had a lot of questions coming in after I asked for them on, on Twitter on Monday. There's been a lot, obviously, around transfers. Now, look, this is something I could do with Mooney next week. Nadam, I think we're better off kind of focusing on the stuff that you can give a real insight into. I think people love listening to how you speak about, you know, from your own experiences, stuff, you know, that, that goes on within football that we don't really know about. So I'm going to start with a guy called Joe's Banter Account. But bear with it. It says, the running is so packed with matches, I'd be curious to hear from Nadam what the recovery process is for professional players. How does it differ when you have a week between matches compared to two, three or four days? It's, it's so funny. Like, if you have that as your account name, people are going to, like, read read whatever you say. With, like, oh, is, this, is he being serious? Is he joking about? But, yeah, if, if this is a serious question. So the big differences are, like, if you play week, if you play Saturday to Saturday, then you structure a week in a manner whereby there's an element of recovery, either the day after the game or on the Monday. And then you do a slightly harder session on the Tuesday, likely off the Wednesday off. This is like proper traditional English or whatever. So I don't know if this is necessarily the case for Pep's side, because some teams bring them in on the Sunday. We recover for one of the days straight after the game. 
then you're just starting to ramp things up a little bit. Then it gets really tactical come Thursday. The final bits of tactics on Friday with just an open of your legs type thing, whether you're playing like five-a-sides, technical work, all that type of stuff. But then when you start playing like three games a week, the sort of emphasis on the training load and stuff just vanishes. So you could be playing Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday. So on the Saturday, you play the game. On the Sunday, you likely do recovery. Monday, you're moving your legs a little bit, but now you're adding the tactical element to it. So there's more walking around and understanding of certain things. Then on the Friday, they try and open your legs up just a little bit. So you're just always preparing for the game because then when Wednesday comes and you play the game, come Thursday, it's recovery. And then Friday again, you're just starting to get moving, but now you're throwing in the tactical elements. You're bringing in the sort of like lower level load type things to training. And I think for some people, they prefer that because some people love training, some people love games, some people love both. But for the people who just love playing games, they prefer it to not be training and to not have that Saturday to Saturday structure because, you know, there's so much variance within that and just want to get ready for matches. And I think that is the case. They they don't wrap you in cotton wool when you're playing a ton of games, but you don't enjoy training as much because they can't really throw in truly, truly long-lasting fun elements because they don't want to keep you out in the field for too long. They want to make sure your recovery is good and make sure that you're ready to go for the next game, but still with enough time tactically to, you know, be to understand what's required of you, but you just can't do it to the same sort of intensity as you would do from Saturday to Saturday. So I guess that's the key thing, intensity. Train intensity vanishes the moment and for longer periods, the moment that you start to be playing a ton of games, but it means that you can provide that intensity for the matches and then just recover and just do it that way, I guess. Can I just ask, the, the main thing from the Liverpool game, well, the main talking point that I could, could find from it was rotating the players, which I've been saying I, before the international break when these games are coming up, and loads of City fans have been saying as well, you know, the nightmare scenario is Liverpool beat Benfica away from home comfortably. They can rest players for the home leg. City got two difficult games against Atletico Madrid, and then they're in complete, completely different shape going into the game at Wembley. So when that happened... It was no surprise to me whatsoever. There was no question of Guardiola maybe picking a, a better team. And when people actually like, bring more subs on, I was like, well, the subs are even more tighter than the ones who have started. So I can get why they're not coming on. But in terms of what you've just said about, you know, the intensity in the in the training sessions goes, could you see after playing Liverpool, playing Atletico Madrid twice, and then Liverpool again, so demanding, so intense, just from what we can see, and obviously what you've experienced, can you imagine how difficult that would have been for that fourth fourth game at Wembley? Yeah, it, it definitely it definitely would have been. And I think some of the reasons for that as well, like Liverpool had the advantage for that week because say after they finished their game against Benfica, most of them would probably be in their beds at 10.30. Whereas for City, their flight may have been leaving at 11, 11.30 or something like that. They're having to go through the processes and that's a longer travel period. So they're not getting home till much later. That means for the next day, they're going to be doing things in a different position. They'll have to probably come in later and things like this. So you're immediately kind of on the back foot. Well, they flew to London and they trained at Millwall's ground. Yeah. Like and one of the things Pep said about after the game, we was just one line. He was like, afterwards, you know, we need to go home and, and like be away from each other. So it's like the players yeah. just need to bit of space yeah. to go see their families again. Exactly. But for Liverpool playing at home, like, as I say, once the game's done, you know, wave to the crowd, get changed, whatever, off you pop, that, that's it. The the game is finished and you're immediately getting ready for that next one. But for City, they couldn't really fully get ready for it in their sort of comforts until, you know, at a, at a later point. So that stuff does make a difference. Like the, the intensity of the games does matter. But then like, say this week here, the game, the opponents are different, but the games are still going to be tough. And it's about just being able to churn out the results. It's not necessarily so much about performance, even though in some ways that would be the ideal. You need to be able to go and perform well. And I think for the 
for the Liverpool game, you could tell they were going to make changes because the effects of the travel and all that stuff means that likely it is those players aren't recovering as quickly as say they would have done if they did play at the Etihad. And then they could just go about the normal sort of business straight after. And, you know, going into the game, like, let's be clear, some players were tired. Liverpool players would also have been tired. I think players all around the league are tired because it's the middle of April. You've played a ton of games. You've done a ton of training sessions anyway. So nobody really enters a game feeling as good as they could ever feel. But they feel good enough to be able to play. And I think for City, like, especially the first half and the like, it's just the bad performances aren't always due to being tired individually. Like I thought Yeah, the same. Guardiola said they weren't tired on the pitch. Yeah, because that's what they wasn't same. tired, they were poor. And they yeah, were, that, and he showed in the second half they weren't tired. My point really is there were so many players who didn't play because they were tired. That's my point. Yeah, well, well you say that, but as a player, you're never going to say you're tired. I think the only way because you want to play. Is like, it not some kind they, of is it not data though when they say No, no, there could be there could be data. There could be data. But what happens if, say, the last game of the season uh in the league, forget it was against Villa or whatever, if they need to win to win the title, and then you look at the the readings bet- between say the Wednesday and the Sun or the Saturday, and it says that like three quarters of your squad are really, really tired. Like are you just gonna bring up people from the twenty threes and go with the people who aren't tired? Like well, no, but it's at the end of the season, isn't it? And then you've got what a week to the Champions League final? No, but you say, you say it's the weeks? end of the season. You say it's the end of the season, but that system which has been created has already been brought down. So if it's been brought down then, it can be brought down whenever. I think that's the no, key. Do you reckon? Yeah, hundred percent. I've seen it myself. Like the the that you get the data and you can have sort of inklings, but you also ask the player and you see how the player's performing. If a player's marker says that they're they're trending towards being tired. It's a very, very brave sports scientist or whoever who goes up to a manager and says player X shouldn't play today because there's a marker that says that he shouldn't play because now that's doubly awkward for the manager and for the player who's probably desperate to be playing. I think Pep and so on and all these other managers, they make big calls, make big decisions and they know who's close to the best. But maybe if if you're trending towards being tired, maybe you accept in the back of your mind, the manager manager says like, you're not going to play 90 minutes. That's the difference. And you can come off the bench. Like playing t- playing tired is different from playing hurt. You yeah, know, physically okay. you're not at your best, but you can still put out some level of performance. But then, as you said before, though, it was performance itself. Like, same as the Champions League last year, my biggest regret from that was that you never know when you're going to get back there. And as I was watching them play, some of them had their worst game of the season. And what was the reason? It's just sometimes it's the way football goes and it's a shame, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And just because we're talking about training and stuff, Todd Romas, who, which I assume is a Spoonerism and it's Rob Thomas, is saying, be curious to hear from Nadam how much training sessions differ under different managers. Massively. And especially if like managers are superstitious and stuff like that. Some managers say, we've got to train on this pitch at this time because we won here last week. And some manager says, right, we have to do this exact same warm-up because we won this and we won that. And I think for, for managers and coaching staff, like they plan the best plan the week in advance and they might make little tweaks and so on. But then I've had some managers, like this was when it was particularly bad. One of the worst coaches I had, we would arrive on the training field and there was nothing set up on the field because he hadn't arrived into the training ground yet and hadn't made a decision what we we're going to be doing for training. Like that's red flag central that because then there are other people where, you know, in advance they've, they've planned the week. They've been in a meeting at eight o'clock. They've set things up and I think for me, the the best managers I had were the ones who had the session planned out and they didn't let the standard ever drop, like never. So if somebody comes in with the wrong sort of attitude and they're doing, they're going through the motion through something, they just stop the session and they ask them, what are you doing? And then that player say, well, you know, I'm a bit tired, my back's a bit sore. They say, well, go in then. Because every time you step out on the field, this is the standard that I expect. And it's very easy, like, 
you can go out and be and feel tired, but you can still try and have the standards. You, you don't have to be sloppy because you're tired. You know what I mean? Like you, your touch can still be clean. Your pass can still be clean. Your intent can still be there. And I think those are the best managers when they know that the intent is key because then when everybody's training hard, it means everybody can gain something. It's like this whole thing, say, I've had some managers where we played five aside uh, and like one player is not trying. Well, that one player not trying means that the other four players are now losing and now they're being criticised and they're at the bottom. But the real good managers there know that that one player is not trying, so they call it out as opposed to some managers who have seen who recognize somebody's not trying and let it pass. And then a team who lost all the games, they all get criticized. There's a big variance. And the ones you want to be around the most are the most consistent managers who have their standards. And if you don't meet them, it doesn't matter who you are, they'll let you know about it. And as a consequence, you know, every time you go out, you have to hit the mark because otherwise it's like, you will just be told to go inside. And that's, that's a walk of shame if I ever saw one, by the way. I bet that never happened to you, did it? Never. Now, mate, in my 16 years I tried, I've played, yeah, and there were three occasions where I tried to sack off a session because I was emotionally ruined because I'd maybe not played for like three, four games. Manager was disrespecting me. I sacked off for approximately 60 seconds and I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like people, some people know how to dive and some people don't. Like I, when I see someone dive, I'm like, I don't even know how they do that. I just can't, I literally just cannot physically do it. So I'm just not going to bother. How about that? Just a quick one to finish on. So we've got three questions because we've had quite a few about like the, the squad size. Mm. Um, loads of people, RG, Sandy Rush, Rich, John Robo, Dominic, loads of people asking about the squad size. And so Guardiola in his press conference, I've written about this on Twitter. I've written about it in an article and on Twitter as well. Guardiola was saying, I need to analyse why in the first halves of the last three FA Cup semifinals, we've been a bit flat. And he was talking about all these things. And obviously most of the press conference has been about his changes and fatigue and stuff. And I was thinking, because I've been thinking about this before the game, I was like, well, surely the squad isn't, Big enough because he always says it's not a massive squad. City fans say it's not as big a squad as people think. It's quality, but it's not big. It's not big on numbers. So I was thinking, and I asked him, is the squad not big enough to win everything that you want to win? Because Guardiola always wants to win every competition, which is a difficult one to, to figure out, really, because you can't just expect them to drop games. But also there's so many things and probably not for the end of an hour podcast, but there's so many things that need to go into like the morale of the players that we talked last at the end of the last season in the summer about loads of City players not being happy with their minutes. Suddenly you start adding on three top players. It might not work, but I looked at it again and looked at those games and I thought, okay, maybe they, let's say they could do with an extra player. Let's say they, if they hadn't sold for Torres and he would score loads of goals, that'd be great. But the lineups they've had against Chelsea last year in particular and Liverpool this year, been full of good players. So mm. is, this, is the squad not necessarily not big enough? But I'm going to say this and immediately add the context of not good enough to win all three or all four, bearing in mind that all three or all four is perfection. So basically, no. the squad isn't perfect. You can't yeah. have Raheem Sterling fit and firing if he's playing one in like two out of five games. You can't have Gabriel Jesus coming in on form when he started one Premier League game in three months. Is that how it, you know, that's, that's what I'm viewing it. Yeah, so for me, like, I thought the squad, the, the team that went out on Saturday, like, you're talking about Fernandinho, Phil Ford and Bernardo Silva, midfield three. Mm. You, you know what I mean? You talk about Grealish playing in there and others, you, like, the back line's the back line. Like, that team, maybe, at their best, aren't as good as that Liverpool team would have been because they're closer to being their set side but it's still capable of not being 3-0 down at halftime. It's still capable of finding a result because at the end of the day, that team that City put out 
you're still better than I think at least 18 other, maybe 16, 17 other teams in the Premier League. And Liverpool have dropped points this season. It's not been to just, it's not been to solely the best sides. So I don't, I don't understand that. Like Zinchenko was playing in the Champions League final. And now someone's like, oh, he's playing now, so it's not good. Fernandinho was, was like, you know, they said if he played in the Champions League final, then, then he would have won. Like, that's that's still the same guy. That's Phil Foden, that's the guy. That's Grealish, that's the guy. So I'm not buying into that. And I think it'll be fair as well overall. Like, no club, in my opinion, in history has had a squad which is going to be as deep as everybody would like because of the nuances of stuff that, like you said at the start, where you can have a quality squad but for all the quality that you have in there, you can still only pick 11. And if you have six, seven, eight real quality players who don't play week in, week out, that's going to be very disruptive because they get when they get signed, they don't get most of them don't get signed to sit on the bench. Like that's a second choice goalkeeper. But if you're a left back, a right back, centre back, midfielder, whatever, you know you're good enough to be able to play. And I think the, the issue with Pep's rotations, in my opinion, is at times when he rotates people who are perceived to be in really good form, when he rotates them onto the bench and then the result doesn't go the City's way, that's when there's bigger criticism because it feels like they're just resting and filling the squad with fodder or whatever. But then there are other people where, like, say start of the season, if Kevin De Bruyne was on the bench, it wasn't the biggest of deals because he wasn't playing that well anyway. You know, but you didn't say it was a rotation. It was just the team that was picked. And I, and I, it's very, you know, football's very reactive. I'm not going to be critical of, too critical of everyone because it's all opinion based as well. But these squad rotations are only ever an issue when City lose. But the nature of the team went up against like Liverpool were in a good spot and they did their rotation as such on the Wednesday to get ready for the Saturday. But City couldn't do that. So, so at the end of the day, the, the way the two teams met was in a different position to how they played the first two games, where most people, well, a lot of people would say that City deserved to have gotten more than just two points from those two fixtures. So. I think the squad is good enough. If they were playing, think, for example, they could have been playing Palace on on Saturday. Could that City team have beaten Palace? Would you reckon? Yeah, I think they could have beaten Chelsea as well. So, so that's, to be honest, so, it could have been Liverpool. <laughs> that's what I mean. So, so, yeah. so what, what, what we say? This is my point on it, really. Like, yeah, so, uh, what, It could what, probably do with an extra body, but it is it is good enough. It could do it. Yeah, yeah. 100%. And if they, if they played well and they lost, then you'd be like, then I'd be saying that's a bigger question. Mm. But they played badly and they lost. So as a consequence, like what we really saying, because it's not like a like for like comparison. That was a perfect hat trick. I think we got some Liverpool chat in there at the end. We got plenty of Haaland chat and we got Nadam's unique insight and input. And that's all that's all you could ever ask for from a podcast, I think. And with that, that is the end of this week's episode of Why Always Us. Well, thanks. I was going to say as ever, but thanks to, to Nadam Manua. Yeah, good to see you, sir. Thank you, mate. Pleasure as always. And don't forget, you can sign up to The Athletic right now for £1 a month for six months by using the code MANCITYPOD. The Athletic.